episode 31 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria, and your host. As for last week, I've got a special report from the man himself, Sean Nittner, who's taking care of Big Bad Con again this year. How's it going, Sean? It's going very well. Thanks, uh, Daniel, for having me on the show. Sure, I should have had that sort of beep, 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 that sort of noise. No? Do you want to give your best shot at that beep? No? Okay, yeah, fair enough. They, they do that for the, this just in, right? Like, oh, yeah, from Gen Con. Yeah, that, yeah, that's right. Yeah, they do. Okay, well, perhaps that's copyrighted. Just forget forget I did that. That was just uh, my... I'm, I'm sure you're, you're, you're safe. Okay, I, I was just going to pretend it was my watch going off something. Anyway, so it's uh, three weeks out now? Yes, yeah, it's coming up around the corner. Uh, I'm amazed. We have a... a 125 events and 94 of them have already filled up completely. Wow, that's good. Which is fantastic. Uh, my my goal is, of course, that uh, all the events fill and all the players get into all the games they want. And um, so far, between the events that are there, games on demand, and open gaming, I think we're in really good shape to do that. Yeah, that was one of the things that I was discussing with uh, Lillian Cohen Moore. You know, I went to Gen Con, and uh, there are so many events, and because the breadth of role playing is so wide, at a huge con like that, you can get people offering all kinds of different games, but only getting one person to sign up, and, and then that leads to a whole bunch of games being cancelled because even though there might be six people um, all playing six different games, uh, yeah. you know, they don't all together. So that's one of the really advan- real advantages that, uh, that that you have, right? But you've, you don't only have role playing there this year, though, right? You've got plenty of other stuff going on. No, no, it's uh, just role playing. Well, role playing in LARPs. Uh, we, we do have some. We do have some very cool special events, though, that are right. sort of centered around that. Um, the first one. Uh, That's what I was trying to casually sort of segue into, Sean. Ah, uh, 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 sorry, you were too <laughs> subtle. Okay. Uh, well, well, on that front, uh, one of the. So tell the, me about these special events, Sean. I'm so jazzed. Let me tell you about them. Um, one of them is Big Bad GM. Which is uh, our our uh, GM competition, our GM throwdown, and the way it works is four GMs uh, uh, enter. Right. Four GMs enter, and only one <laughs> yeah, is the is the big bad GM. Four oh. GMs enter the. Contest. Oh, so we don't get to execute the three losers then? So four GMs enter, one leaves. No. Right, right, something like that. Um, and uh, they are have a table with four players. And then the judges give them three secret ingredients, a antagonist, a genre, and a location that they have to instantly craft a game out of. And when I mean instantly, they have exactly four hours from the moment they hear the ingredients to start and complete and run their game. So there's virtually no prep. It's build characters around around that genre, and while the players are making their characters and the GM's interacting with them, they're figuring out what the game's going to be. And then they run, and a uh, total of four hours later, the judges the whole time are, are watching them, interrupting the games every once in a while, asking questions, how well they integrated the elements, how much fun the players are having, how well they're teaching the system to the players. Right. And um, and then one is announced as the Big Bad GM. And right. it's, a, it's a phenomenally fun event. Um, I've been in two of them before Big Bad Con. We, we did two contests like this, and they were just amazingly fun. And then uh, last year... It was a really big hit, so very excited to bring it back again this year. Right, and when's that running on the schedule? That's Saturday uh, late afternoon, evening, uh, Saturday 4 p.m. to 10 p.m. Right. Um, and it's going to be in one of like the, the boardrooms that is closest to sort of the registration area, so it's going to be very easy as you're walking by to just kind of poke your head in 
and uh, listen in on the games. Because it, I, I generally don't think that role-playing is a spectator sport. Right. But in this particular instance, because there is a lot of uh, sort of ribald humor and uh, joking competition between the GMs, uh, it, it actually, I think, is a lot of fun to just sit in for a few minutes and uh, watch the excitement as all the GMs are trying to sort of one-up one another and, and run the best game possible. Right. Um, but, Sean, you've got other special events too, right? I do, I do. You are so slick. And it's like when I get to them. Um, one of them is a, a, a real cute and fun little thing, which is that Jason Morningstar and Luke Crane are going to be uh, having breakfast with, with folks. I'm uh, going to be bringing muffins and orange juice and coffee, and they're going to do a panel. Uh, generally, I don't do a lot of panels at the con, but I... I I eked out a little space and a little time for them to have a panel to talk about um, their very divergent views on on gaming. And I think Jason and Luke are really an excellent uh, pair of people to get in the room together because they're both uh, very successful game developers, but for very different reasons. Right. And they they both have been developing in the same gaming environment, so it's not like you know, one of them is Gygaxian, you know, developing 30 years ago, and one of them is modern. They're both modern game developers. They're both indie game developers, small press, their own publications. So in a lot of ways, you'd think that they would be very similar. Um, and and certainly, there are similarities, but their games are decidedly different from each other. And so I, I'm really excited to see the two of them talk about their game design philosophies. Is there any chance they'll come to blows? Uh, I hope so. I mean that that will really that that will mean I should have charged for the event. I, th- I think you're right. That one, Luke Crane, Jason Morning, so who'd take that? Um, <clears throat> so you've got the panel with uh, Jason and uh, Luke, and mm-hmm. you've got uh, Big Bad uh, GM. Do you have any other um, sort of more general events rather than specific role playing events there? Yeah, there's one. Uh, there's one more that I'm that I um, I've run this twice before, and um, it's been very very successful so far. And I think it's going to be even better, at Big Bad, because we have more time and more space to do it in. And that is the Improv for Gamers Workshop. Right. Um, it's it, it, it started um, probably about a year ago when we were talking about improv skills like rolling with failure, or accepting, listening to other people, picking up on other ideas, just really trying to create a, um, a story out of a game um, because a lot of new modern indie games will say, oh, use improv skills to make your game better, but then they don't really talk about them. Right. Uh, every once in a while they might reference a book you could pick up, but we, we generally felt um, that those skills weren't readily available to most players, to most, most gamers. Sure. And so um, my, my girlfriend, Karen, is an improver, and um, she's friends with a lot of improvers, and she's brought them into gaming. And so we thought it only natural to bring gaming to improv. Right. And uh, Mia Blankensop is a friend of mine, and she's also been teaching improv for about six years, and she has just started to game in the last year or so. And so she's really excited because for her, gaming is very new. And right. so she's sort of you know new to gaming, and for a lot of the people attending, improv is very new. And so, you know, neither person needs to feel like they're out of their depths because we're all just sort of figuring it out. But she's sure. got a lot of great improv games, a lot of great improv techniques, which I think um, ultimately just help us tell much cooler stories and help us uh, have more dynamic, more interesting, more involved characters. 
Um, and so that's a great event. And it's even better because this time we have much more space than we've had in the past, and we have a, a longer time block. So there's going to be more games, um, you know, more exercises, more scenes that she'll be able to do with her uh, assistant instructors. Right, and that's one of the other things that I noticed about uh, about the schedule that you've got. It seems to cater to both ends of the of the role playing spectrum, so to speak. And and I think that if you came from an improv background, I think you'd actually find it a, a, a good convention to to attend. There's plenty of LARPs and 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 like you said, there's the improv uh, for gamers section as well, where you know you could you could dip your toes into the to the role playing scene. Yeah, I, I hope so. Um, you know, you were mentioning earlier that at, at Gen Con, it's it's often a shame that there might be a lot of games, but it's hard to. Uh, but but then some of them don't fill. Right. One of the things I'm sort of obsessive compulsive about is is filtering games such that they match the audience, and also trying to find the audience for the games. So, um, I, I'm I was uh, pretty. Uh, diligent about trying to, you know, run, you know, have have GMs and have systems and have game settings and descriptions that I thought would that would go over very well. And now, as there's a few games that haven't really necessarily gotten as much attention as I think they they could have, or I'm reaching, deserve, yeah, or deserve. I'm reaching out to players and saying, "Hey, have you seen this game?" to try and fill in those spots. And you know, my goal is that we have this perfect mesh where everybody's playing, and I'm really excited that there's very, very few games that if the con was tomorrow, almost all of the games would be have enough players to, to go off. And I still have a few weeks to fill in a few of those those few gaps. Right, and so are there still tickets available for the, the event? And if so, will people actually be able to get into games? Uh, yes, on both counts. Um, I, I just did a survey of the event listings and there's still openings in every single slot right now uh, albeit in some only a few right. uh, so tickets are available and then uh, what's always sort of the great unknown but I've heard so much activity about it on Twitter that I'm feeling very encouraged about it is games on demand um, right. last year I it was more informal uh, there wasn't dedicated GMs this year I've actually had GMs dedicated to fill Seats and to be sitting at tables ready to run games all called long. So, nice. you know, there's no question of, well, will there be someone there to run a game? If you're coming anytime during the con, uh, there'll be a, a coordinator who will show you, you know, here's the jams we have in the room right now. Here's the games that they'll be able to offer. What, Which of these sound interesting to you? We'll put you down, put your name down, and the next slot opens up. The slots are revolving every two hours, sure. you know, to in a game. So, uh, there's an excellent opportunity if there's any gaps in your schedule to go and just check out a whole myriad of games. And we have, I think, they're offering over 30 different games to, between all the jams. Wow! It's just a, just a ton of opportunities to, to try out things in little short uh, installments. And I, so I think that's going to really nicely fill out any spots where someone's like, "Oh, I got in all these great games, but I couldn't find anything in this slot right. that I liked or that was available." Games on Demand is going to be your go-to place in that case. Right, and it also, you said that the slots are two hours long? Yes, um, so the, the Games on Demand games will be, um, most of the scheduled games are four uh, or six hours, right. but the Games on Demand will be rotating every two, will be going every two hours. So right. 
if you walk up and say, hey, I want to get into a game, you're never going to have to wait too long for the next. Yeah, that sounds ideal, too. Like, I mean, if you had decided you wanted to go to the con, but uh, you didn't want to put anything, you know, like, because maybe you wanted to watch that, uh, you know, RNGM, or you wanted to, to take part in some, um, imbibing some libations, or if you wanted to you catch up with friends, you know, anything, you know, I'm going to go and uh, play a game now. You've got, you know, an opportunity to try out lots of different things, too, without having to commit to, to four hours. Yeah, and, and I know several players, several attendees, who have said that's really all they plan to do, is just playing Games on Demand all, all weekend, and, and I think that they're going to have a phenomenal time, because the, the GMs that we have are, are really excellent, the games that they're offering are, uh, you know, hip and new and exciting, and um, so it is, it is totally a 100% viable option to say, I'm going to sign up to come to the con, but I'm I'm just going to uh, hop in Games of Demand and game all weekend. Nice. Well, thanks very much for keeping us up to date here, Sean. I'll, uh, I'll get you back in next week if you've got anything you'd like to, to add. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dan. For having uh, me on thank you. Thanks for talking again, Sean. Bye-bye. Today is a day I've been waiting for a long time. My guest is Lillian Cohen-Moore, the RPG Girl Thursday blogger for Geek's Dream Girl and writer-designer behind the Guide to the Village by the Sea. So without further ado, hi there, Lillian. How's it going? It's wonderful, thank you. Have you have you had a uh, nice day so far? It's been pretty. I think today is officially the day that went from being summer to being uh, to being autumn. It went from twenty nine yesterday to thirteen degrees today. So <laughs> uh, the the fall storms here started last night, so it'll be black skies till December, and then we'll all perish under snow. <laughs> I find that highly unlikely. Don't you live on the West Coast? I, I, I do, but I'm situated quite perfectly between a couple of different mountains and oh, nice. the seaside, and we get nor'easters every year. Oh, that, that sounds idyllic. Anyway, we're talking about the weather. How boring. Okay, so how long have you been a role player? <laughs> uh, let's see here. I uh, started when I was a kid. Let me do some quick math. Um, if I started around six, I guess 22 years. Well, that's, that's an early start. So how did you get started? I have three older siblings, all of whom are gamers. Right. <laughs> and and are, they like, are they a lot older, or does it progress in two-year increments? Oh, we from... progress in three-year increments from each other, while three years apart. Right. So that, let me do some quick math there. So three times three is nine plus six, 15. So your, your oldest um, brother, Randall, or sister, was, uh, was, did they get into it right from the very start then? Um, let's see. Well, Christy, who's the oldest, was the one that was dating a GM from her high school. Right. I think probably when she was 14 or 15 is when they started having the games at the house with her boyfriend. And my mother's helper at her art gallery was also really big into D&D and would run games from my siblings at the shop. So they had like two doses of D&D a week. Right. And, and how did you uh, get, did you find it as a six-year-old? Were you kind of like, you know, you had yourself a, a character and somebody sort of drove it around for you? Or were you uh, in their boots and all right from the start? Well, I, I begged and begged and begged, and finally my mother told them that they, they had to concede that their little sister's going to play at least one game with them while she was just going to kill everyone. <laughs> and I played with them, and they weren't very happy about it, so they were rather mean, and I got very cross, and I volunteered to take the first watch, and I turned my big eyes up at the GM and said, I kill them all. <laughs> and while this was not accepted as a canon event, he did let me roll, and I would have successfully killed my entire party in the night. 
that sounds like an auspicious start. And so from there, did they decide to treat you nicely in case you were actually allowed to, to kill them, or did they say you're not allowed to play again until you're X years old? My sisters uh, soundly refused to game with me, but my brother waited about six months, uh, killed me rather terribly in a little game that he ran for me, and then he would run games for me ever since then. And that was actually what ended up growing into our first like gaming group, was when we were in grade school, and some of his friends would come over, and I got to game with them. Right, so it was quite a supportive environment then for you starting out. Yes. Did you uh, have any sort of knowledge of the um, people that were opposed to the idea of Dungeons and Dragons or perhaps in a wider sense role-playing? I had no idea when I was little. Probably, I think maybe in fifth or sixth grade, I found out that there were people that thought that Dungeons and Dragons was harmful, which I thought was ridiculous because it was make-believe with rules. How could that be harmful? Right. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a good question. One that I don't have a ready answer for, I'm afraid. So you started out with Dungeons and Dragons and then... Um, well, we we did board games and tabletop games. Um, uh, if if you could roll a die or have a game piece, we probably owned it or played it when I was little. So I started out with D&D, and then I moved on to uh, Shadowrun and classic White Wolf games. Um, my uncle actually ran a once-a-week vampire game for us when I was in about sixth grade, once right. a week for about a year. Right. <laughs> Um, you mentioned board games there. What was your uh, perennial? Do you have a perennial favourite, or did you play to play everything? Um, well, we played everything we could get a hold of, and our parents would give us a game every year at the holidays. Right. Um, I really liked Nightmare because it was ridiculous and all about scaring everyone else. It was one of those video board games. I think I played it one time, but yeah, well, as you say, it was pretty uh, pretty difficult to um, to buy into the conceit that you were actually in a nightmare. It was a if, if all nightmares were like that, I don't think they'd have such a bad reputation. That's, <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, so you had White Wolf and, and then what? And then I just started playing whatever my friends had on hand. Uh, Call of Cthulhu, let's see here, Cyberpunk, uh, Aeon Trinity, which I guess sort of counts as Old World Light White Wolf, but I don't think most people would count it that way. No. I got into story games a couple of years ago, which I'm very sad that I've only been doing story games for about two years because I really, really like them. That I've made amazing friends at conventions because of story games, and right. I just had no idea they even existed. Right. Do, do, do you think that that's uh, pretty common uh, for most people? Because there's not a lot of advertising about role playing, or none, I would, I would say, and the number of people that are into role playing isn't that big. And once you're in an established group, you know you. you your contact with people is relatively minimal, at least other role players. Um, so the chances of, of story games or indie games or whatever you want to call them sort of moving through the, the role-playing society uh, I think is relatively slow and I think it's just only word of mouth that really, uh, that really moves it around. Is that your experience? I think so, though it's been getting, um, the, the whole process of hearing about other games and designers has been sped up a lot for me because of the ubiquitous adaptation to the internet that so many of us have been participating in. So the, the conversation of finding out about new games is much, much faster now. Right. And just going back to sort of when you got started with, with role-playing, did you ever experience any uh, feelings of, uh, you know, I'm a girl in role-playing and that's unusual, or because you started out with your family and at least one of them uh, was, uh, was well, you have at least one sister, um, did you not really experience that until uh, later on? 
I think once I got into gaming groups that wasn't with a sibling, since I had three gaming siblings to choose from, um, I, I started to seriously encounter a lot of pushback, and I had to, you know, prove that I was a gamer, and I had to prove that just because I was a girl, you know, I should be able to play, which was a very rude awakening around 12 or 13 years old. Right. In what respects did, uh, how, how did that play out? Well, there would be guys when I would experiment with, you know, playing with new groups and new games that they would try to boss me around or tell me how to play my character, or try to, you know, show me how to roll dice, which I've been doing since grade school. <laughs> <laughs> you put it in your hand and then you yeah, jiggle it around a bit and then you turn it over and yeah. it drops out. Gravity is amazing. Yeah, it's it's fabulous. Physics is is such a wonder. But yeah, guys would would try to bust me around. And then when I got into high school and I started LARPing, uh, because there was a couple of different troops uh, near where I was living at the time, there was a lot of, oh, well, girls are just here as, like, arm candy. And that was really galling and rude. Yeah. (laughs) Being the other side of the equation, so to speak, when it comes to uh, relationships and role-playing, and uh, Karen in episode two was saying, you know, like she doesn't uh, like to date at the uh, gaming table, at least that's what she says, what she does is something altogether different, but um, when it comes to um, being a girl and around guys that, I wouldn't go so far as to paint, I mean, painting with a broad brush, mm-hmm. role-players generally stick with, with other role-players, and generally speaking, are relatively insular types you know they like those solitary hobbies or at least very specialized type type hobbies um how did how did that um how accurate is that to your experience and being a girl um getting involved in it 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 just seems strange that considering there are so few girls that guys would take such a strange tack that girls weren't doing it right and try and scare them away (laughs) um well, I know that for me, I have dated guys from from my tables, um, especially in LARP because the group is so big. So That's right. Yeah. Of I think LARP's a bit safer. Yeah. 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 Um, I know that in my case, I don't usually engage in these sort of like romance plot lines with my partners, and we tend to have a. Um, well, basically a gentleman's agreement going on where we try to minimize how much we interact uh, in a game while we're in character because we don't want to be a distraction and we don't... Uh, most of the people I've had relationships with, we agreed that we did not want to seem like we were just playing together because we were a couple in real life. Right. And do, do you does that go over fairly, uh, fairly well? I mean, uh, it's... Inevitably, as you've said, you have dated partners from, um, you know, from your role-playing table. Um, mm-hmm. That inevitably means that you've had more than one relationship at a yeah. role-playing table. And how how have breakups been then? And have you been playing at the time? And how- I think for tabletop games, it's more awkward because it's a very small group and we've been together for a while and then we break up and people are like, all right, so what are we doing with your character and their character? Or if one of you is running the game, what do we do now? And... I I have usually, if, if it was not under terrible conditions, if I was a player, um, tied up my character, uh, offered them as an NPC to whoever was running the game, if that would be useful to them, and I've bowed out of the group for at least a couple of months, if not permanently leaving it, because I wanted people to keep having fun, but I also didn't want to feel really socially awkward because I was sitting next to my ex. Right. Um, and then at LARPs, it's it's a lot easier. People provide provided very um, 
sort of like awkwardness free and comfort zones where we would just sort of agree to avoid each other and our friends could come and go as they pleased and we just didn't hang out. (laughs) Right. So it sounds like not not too much. You sound like a bit of a femme fatale because you sound like you've got a fairly clearly delineated sequence of events that uh, that, that occurs. Um, so, do, do, so is it your responsibility then if you do the breaking up to, to leave the table or is the person that you're broken up with, do they, they how, how does that work? I, I think it is very case-by-case basis um, in, in whatever gender or combination thereof. Uh, I think that whoever is feeling the most uncomfortable is often the person who leaves, and usually I'm that person because, like I said, I I want people to keep having fun, but I would also like to be comfortable on my weekends with my hobby, and if I can't be comfortable at that table, then I'll go find a new one. Yep, fair enough. So, um, what do you play now? Oh, um, I think most of my role playing this year has been at conventions and mostly story games. Right. <laughs> right. And were you at PAX just recently? I was at PAX. I was one of the people running the door for the indie games on demand space. Nice. So, are you going to Big Bad Con in uh, October? I hadn't had a ticket yet, but I might look at that and see if it's financially feasible. <laughs> that sounds like a great idea. I'm, I'm uh, running games there, so you, you won't be able to get into one of my games because all of my games are full now because I'm so popular. No, I think that uh, <laughs> I think that uh, that's a credit to not so much to me or my reputation. It's more of a, a credit to Sean Nitton, who's been and uh, and Kristen Hayworth, who have been really careful with the RPG programming and and stuff like that. And I think that you know they're, they're adding more more as required, but there's always the risk in a um, in a convention setting that you put so many games out there and then it's kind of uh, you know like on YouTube or something like that you know once you start getting a few hits people automatically will will choose the ones that get some hits so once one game starts filling up it will attract other people but because our hobby is so broad and there are so many different types of games that people are interested in then you can sort of I know at Gen Con particularly um, you know you get one person in this game and one person in that game and one person in another game and it turns out that none of the four games go whereas if there'd been fewer games offered then mm-hmm. the games would have would have uh, would have filled up, and then that would have been uh, better all round. So yeah, anyway, yeah, I think Big Bad Con is going to be uh, it's going to be great. I'm looking forward to it. Okay, so I think people have got a pretty good idea of uh, of where you're coming from and, and where you're at now. So we'll go on with the inside the role players studio questions. What's your favourite book or supplement, other than something you've written, of course? <laughs> um, this will not be a shock. It's a wraith book, uh, right. Channel Houses of the Shoah. Right. Tell me about that. Well, um, tell the audience about that. Of course, that's my favorite <laughs> book as well. No, it's, it's not, but go ahead. For people who aren't familiar with it, it's a supplement for a wraith. It was published by the Black Dog imprint from White Wolf, so, mm. you know, the, the mature reader's line. Yes. Um, Richard Dansky, who was the line developer for Wraith, felt very strongly about, you know, putting publishing money where its mouth was. And if there's right. going to be mature themes allowed on one of the imprints, then yeah. approaching a mature theme was, was necessary. And Absolutely. that's where Charnel House's The Shoah came from. Right. And the the Shoah refers specifically to the Jewish experience um, from World War II right. and what other people call the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is probably one of the most emotional, brutal books I have mm. ever read, period. And that right. includes... RPG text. It, right. it was treated amazingly well. Yeah, yeah. It transcend sort of transcends the the genre in, in a lot of respects. I think it's uh, 
yeah, it's it's a shame. No, I wouldn't say it's a shame that it's a role playing book, but it's uh, it's it's. it's I think it deserves a wider audience. I'll put it like that. Um, so now that we've brought up uh, the elephant in the room, Wraith, um, tell me about your experiences initially with Wraith. And I don't, I can't promise anybody we're going to get to any other questions uh, <laughs> aside from Wraith. So, so if you're interested in anything else, then you're going to have to just skip your way through if you're not interested. But you should because because Wraith is fabulous in a lot of respects. But go ahead. How did you get started with Wraith? I picked up a copy from a friend of mine. I think probably in like early high school, and they're like, "Oh, Wraith, that's it's such a depressing game. I don't get it. It sucks." And they gave me their main book, and I read it, and I was like, "This is amazing. How did you not like connect with this emotionally?" Right. Um, I, I think that one of the reasons that the old, the the classic World of Darkness games like Wraith and Vampire and all that have very specific um, communities that sort of gravitated to it was that there was emotional touchstones that some people just didn't have. And that's totally okay. But Wraith, I I was surrounded by people that didn't like it. And so I'd find play-by-post games online. I had one very brief, terribly faded Wraith game that that might be sort of appropriate to Mm. both. Um, That's right, yeah. Yeah. That I got to play in, and then an even more terribly faded one that I got to run, which only lasted three sessions. <laughs> right, right. I'm, I'm fascinated to hear how this uh, this all went. Okay, so you, so first, the first point you raised is it's hard to, it was hard to find people to play it. And I do agree with you that, to a degree, the games uh, from the old world of Darkness did a, appeal to a certain uh, a certain type of gamer. And I think they got progressively more mature as the line went along. I, I didn't really get into Changeling at all and that I didn't follow Trinity or any of the ones after that. But, um, but yeah, I found that they got sort of progressively darker as they went along. I mean, Vampire is fairly dark, but it's, also, but it's more sort of, uh, you know, Hollywood angsty type stuff. And, and, of course, that's the way that it's written. And, and if you're yelling at the speakers right now about, you know, it's all the way that you run it. Well, you're absolutely right, it is. But the source material informs the game to a greater or lesser extent and I think that you'd be hard pressed to find a game more visceral is that a good word mm-hmm. for for Wraith so did you play the other ones and then play Wraith or did you think- sort of go I really want to play Wraith and I'm going to forego anything if, if I got the opportunity I think of the books, the very first White Wolf game I saw ever and got to leaf through was first edition Mage the Ascension. Right. I got to play Vampire before I got to play any of the other games. Right. Um, I think Wraith was probably the third or fourth classic World of Darkness game that I actually got a hold of and got to look at and went, oh my god, this is my game. Right. Um... Yeah, I didn't connect with Changeling at all. It took an incredibly talented storyteller to redeem uh, Werewolf for me years later. Like, three right. or four years ago, I finally found an ST who who ran it, and I was like, oh my god, this is this is really good. I did right. not know that Werewolf could be good. Yeah, yeah. yeah that one of the, my favorite bits of uh, and Wraith, because Project Twilight is kind of like, a, well, it's, nominally it's an offshoot of, of, uh, of Werewolf, but uh, working in, you know, the, the worm, and uh, and Project Twilight and Werewolf is the way sort of I, I got into uh, I got into running sort of werewolfy uh, werewolfy type games. But back to uh, back to Wraith because it's you're you're a rare specimen that uh, that can can talk about it. So you had a lot of trouble getting uh, getting people together to to play the game. Did you find people through the online boards, or did you just sort of like have to scout around? Because I I never found a single other person that wanted to play Wraith. Now, admittedly, my, my sort of catchment, if you like, of, of role players was relatively small, oh. but but um, 
did you did you meet people through online play to get to do that uh, actual tabletop play, or did you manage to finally convince people to give it a shot? The the online finding of people, I I did some very limited stuff with with play by post on forums with people, and that was probably the longest lived I've ever managed to right. get rate like a playing fix. I think maybe about three months. Right, sure. Uh, and then people I played with in person, I it was like being six years old again and begging and pleading mm. and begging and pleading, please, yeah. just this once, just this once, can we try this? Right, right. And, and so you said that you ran it. How did that go? I know um, you said it was ill-fated, but I'm wondering in terms of how you prepared for it and that sort of thing. I I, I studied up on the main book. I, I read some suggested reading. I sort of marinated my brain in, in Greek underworld because it seemed like a good idea at the time. I was probably mm. like 20. Sure. And after three sessions, my friends were like, we really love you, but we really don't get this game. It. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's, it is a very it is a very acquired taste. But there's one particular aspect of it that that we'll probably take the time to dwell on here, and that's the idea of the of the shadow. I've spoken about the shadow a, a couple of times, but what's your take on the on the shadow and and how it sort of fits into the overall um, role playing experience in a wider in a wider sense, at least in terms of as compared with story games at the moment. Oh wow! Um, wow. The shadow, my take on the shadow. Holy crap! Um, oh, I probably should have asked if it's okay if I swear or not. Oh, no, of course, of course, as you go, go right ahead. Okay. Oh, good, good. Um, I think that the shadow is one of those things about Wraith that if you don't get it, it's another reason that people disconnect from the game and just mm. write it off as oh, it's the slit your wrist because everything is sad forever game. Yes. And if you get that terrifying symbiotic relationship that wraiths have with with the shadow it's just ah it is so fucking good and it is so hard to put into words yeah um i i interviewed richard dansky earlier this year and he said that when he set out as the line developer that um the the underworld that that inspired wraith um was was hesiod's underworld but he wanted it to have Lovecraftian scope and our town style um, sort of emotional intensity, right. um, which I think those those three things combined like perfectly put it in context. But it's one of those things that if you don't connect with the game, you completely miss all of that. Sure. Um, and that's yeah. a very specific set of backgrounds mm-hmm. too. I mean, I think most people can key into to one or perhaps two, but to have the uh, you know to have all three of them in your in your background is uh, is fairly rare but going to something you said about you know that the the shadow is something that's hard for people to get their get their head around um i think going back to the the 90s uh when uh when race first came out i'm not aware of another book where you had this interaction between the interaction between the the story arc of the characters in the game in as much as you know other players were helping to write your story, or at least impact on your story. I mean, to that point, um, as I say, I'm, in my experience, it was very hands-off. I mean, you can, I can do what I want with my character, and you can do what you want with your character, and we can work together, and or we can work against each other. But at no mm-hmm. point do you actually get to, you know, work the levers and controls on my character. And for a lot of people, um, and a number of guests that I've spoken with uh, previously, you know, that idea of relinquishing control of your character to somebody else for the purpose of the story is was the first big hurdle that uh, that people had 
Oh yeah, I was I was so excited when I saw that in the books when I first started reading Wraith because I I don't know, it's probably too much theater and psychology in college, but I'm perfectly fine with that. That it seems so fascinating that someone could sort of play back this this dark note of self from what they had seen of you and how they had perceived what you've been doing in the story and just there are some people who are really good at that and it is absolutely terrifying mm. oh absolutely that uh, adds just that extra dimension or added at least um, to me when I was devising ways to, to play the game you know like that, that added such a beautiful extra dimension to the game that I, I couldn't see why somebody would not want to have that interplay between um, between players or between between characters, I suppose some of it is you know when you're a teenager you don't want to you know like allow people to you know you've, you've got your own world and you've got your own beliefs yeah. and you've got things going in a straight line you don't want somebody you know messing with your stuff and role playing for a lot of people I think probably is a, way, a place is cathartic in a lot of respects to use a white wolf type word you know where you get to you know be that person that you're not in, in reality and then having that taken away from you by somebody who's playing your uh, your shadow required a pretty special type of uh, role player back then. Do you think that Wraith was uh, ahead of its time in that respect? And with story games now, people might be more receptive to the idea? Wow, I hadn't thought about that before in context of, like, history of gaming. I, I do think that it was definitely ahead of its time in that respect, because if you could accept relinquishing control... I think one of the reasons people didn't like that part of the shadow is that they confused relinquishing control on some of the inner dialogue of their character with losing agency because you don't mm. lose agency. You just give someone else the opportunity to tell you what dark, terrible things are in your character's head. Right. And, and yeah. And I, and I think that that's in a lot of respects is good because it, because there's always this social contract when you're doing a role playing game. You don't, you know, you don't want to mess with the other, or at least in the games I was playing, you don't want to mess with the other characters. But you know, here's the, here's the, you know, carte blanche to to do such a thing because your your shadow is pointing out the various directions that you should be that you should be going that you should be going and whispering those voices and almost giving you an excuse to be the you know to be the uncaring. Uh, character or at least the you know, hedonistic or narcissistic or whatever it might happen to be um, mm-hmm. type of character that you know that perhaps you might like to be in ordinary circumstances but don't because of the you know, the social contract involved in the in the game. Mm-hmm. So so how did running people how did you run people's shadows then in um, in the game that you were the the storyteller for? I I tried to encourage them. I I can look back on it now and be like, oh, I was. I was really trying to encourage them to just let loose and be wild and awesome like so many people I've seen playing story games. And they just, they weren't ready for that. And I was too young to realize that. Right. um, That I was giving them, like, a lot of leeway. And they're like, I I don't know, what am I supposed to do? You're supposed to tell me what I'm doing. You're my ST. Um, Which is, yeah. And did you have a storyteller actually, like, did you actually play their shadows for them? Did you let them play their own shadows? Because they offer three sort of different ways that you can go about it. The first being, you know, that when the shadow takes over, the storyteller does it, and then that becomes sort of like just a narrative, and and I certainly wasn't interested in that aspect of it. Um, The second one they gave the option of is where the player who is playing the shadow actually takes control as the shadow, 
and uh, and runs the the character. And then the third one is that when the shadow takes control of the the wraith, um, that control remains with the player, but that they need to try to act in the way that they've been prompted to by the shadow guide. I I tried each one. The third one was the one that they seemed to bulk at the most, and I think that was my first lesson in how rules are written versus how you run games. There can be a lot of really weird perceived passivity. Um, I think that's where I started really losing any kind of liking for being called a storyteller and that I'd rather just be called a GM. (laughs) Right, sure. Um... Yeah, the farther we got out from me telling characters what was happening and narrating to them, the more uncomfortable they got. And I kept pushing for those limited few sessions that, you know, you guys can do these things for each other. And there's the stuff that you can do in harmony. And in a, I think in a very strange way, players being able to play other people's shadows um, is a constructive and very weird sideways way to get PvP urges out of someone's system. Mm. Yeah, there is uh, certainly that uh, aspect of it because, you know, you're, depending on how many people you've got, you may be the shadow guide for the person who's your shadow guide, right? There's that, mm-hmm. you know, mu- mutually assured destruction goes on there, I guess, which is not part yes. of the game, but, you know, it's, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's hard to hard to resist. But um, so they preferred to... Uh, if I told them what was happening, they were pretty okay with that. And right, after so that, they were like, well, you know, I guess I could play my shadow, but I kind of feel like maybe I'm bad at that. And when I tried to push, you know, playing each other's shadows, which I think is a really great way to get the narrative going in yeah. Wraith, yeah. there was a lot of pushback. And that was one of the, you know, we really don't get this. We love you, but can we never play this game again feedback? Right, right. yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a shame. Because one of the major jobs of the shadow guide and for those who are not familiar with with wraith you know your your character is the wraith and they they're dead basically and they're held to what's called the the, the skin lands or the or the shadow lands actually um by what things items called fetters and haunts and stuff basically things that that they've the reason that they're wraith is because that they've got unresolved things in their lives and there are various relationships or people or objects or places which which stop them from going with, uh what's the word now Lillian, uh, they go across the tempest and then they go. Uh, was it transcendence? Is it? Um, wow, I feel like such a terrible fan because I can't remember. <laughs> I... Well, well, we'll pretend that it's transcendence. But in yeah. any case, the, you know, they, <laughs> they basically, you know, you, you resolve all of these things and you're allowed to, you know, then you go to oblivion. Um, but you know, like depending on, you know, depending on whether you've resolved these fetters or whether you're a good person, or not, it's not really, not really part of it. The object is to try to um, retain a contact with these things which were important for you. That is, if you say, for example, you might have a wraith who's a new parent, say, for example, and uh, or perhaps you know somebody who's who who let's just say, for example, a, a soldier in in Iraq or Afghanistan or something who's who gets his his wife or partner or whatever uh, pregnant leaves is killed during, in combat before actually ever getting to see their child. So something that might hold them. Uh, in the Shadowlands or prevent them from transcending altogether is is seeing their child or watching their child grow up or, or something like that. Alternatively, you know, you could have likened the, the crow, for example, you know, you could have been killed by a certain person and what's holding you is revenge, but there are various other things that can that can hold you um, 
that can prevent you from from transcending. And when you die, the um, you basically become a ghost. And the and it's a pretty traditional interpretation of, of what a ghost is in a lot of respects. But but part of it is that whereas when you are corporeal, when when you're alive, you're able to better control dark urges, you know within yourself but when you cross over that sort of like dark half of yourself gains more traction more control um and then while you're playing the wraith you've got a shadow and the shadow is like i say is that is your dark half and as the game progresses there's this to and fro between who has control the dark half or the light half and and the the goal of the um the wraith is to try to resolve these fetters in a in a in a good way, you know, like to see your child grow up and successfully what have you until you feel it's time to let go or and then the shadow's goal is to try to destroy all these fetters and destroy all of these um destroy all of these haunts or, or destroy all of the, play, the the links that you have back to the living world so that you'll be thrust into the uh into the tempest and, and become a, a spectre. Who, uh, although, um, do, do you recall what the what the goal of the of the spectres are? Because once the shadow has taken fully taken control and you're, and you're thrust into the tempest, then why does the? Sh- I'm not quite sure why the shadow wants that. Mm, I'm not entirely comfortable saying. Just in case us talking causes people to want to go play Wraith. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> So, I, I believe that some spoilers never die. Oh, sure. Okay, for sure. All right. So in that <laughs> case, uh, then there is quite a, there's a very rich backstory. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, that's something worth, worth investigating. In any case, so the game is basically a to and fro between the, the shadow and the wraith, at least in part. And then the other part of it is, you know, trying to get vengeance or, you know, any one of those those things that, that's holding you uh, from being, a, um, holding you from, from transcending. So when you're playing the shadow, your goal is to try to prevent the uh, your good half, if you like, from you know achieving any of these these goals, or more specifically, in order for them to enter the tempest. Yeah, the shadow is probably the most terrifying manifestation of someone's self-destructive impulses that I've seen in role playing. Right, and and getting somebody to actually embrace that because it does require a certain amount of buy-in from the from the player as well because. When you're constructing the shadow, the shadow is actually a character in its own right, right? Mm-hmm. And so that shadow has, you know, various abilities and things that it can use, and uh, it can offer you help, right? Like as it can offer the the wraith help to achieve things, but it but it comes at a cost, if I remember rightly. Yeah, it, uh, the shadow is is very seductive with just how much it can offer to you in terms of taking shortcuts or saving your life in a really bad situation, which the Shadowlands are full of. Yeah, yeah. Yes, that's the, that's, you know, that's the, the thing. The price that... is just a little bit more your soul and agency mm. and humanity. <laughs> right. And do you think that uh, you could put a game together now for somebody to play? Like, Do you think that you would find people would enjoy it? I think I could. I think that I know enough people now that are willing to take risk at the table that I, if I really wanted to do that, I think I finally could. But you wouldn't want to go back there? Like, in your mind, it's the perfect game, and you don't want to, like, dig into it a little further and, and see more of its warts, perhaps? I, I would love to go back. I just have to be very, very choosy about who I went back there with. I think one of the reasons people were uncomfortable with Wraith but couldn't really elucidate it was that if you give the amount of buy-in that game is asking you for, it is a very dark, creepy, intense, uncomfortable game. Right. Yeah, I, 
I, I never quite saw it that way. I saw that it had um, possibilities. I mean, it definitely has elements of that, but I also saw it as, like, it had the potential, because I never got to play it all the way through, but it had the potential to have some really bright, brilliant, you know, great, happy moments, right? Like the whole oh, idea yeah, definitely. of... I mean, the movie, you know, the... Um, I mean, I've seen Ghost a few times, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I think that uh, you know, all acting aside and all that sort of thing, just the idea that it encapsulates is very, um, I think, is very evocative. And I think that most people would like to, when whether you're an atheist or a, a Jew or a Muslim or a, you know whatever you might happen to be, um, mm-hmm. just the idea of there being something after you die is reassuring in some ways. And I think that most people can buy. I think people are bought in part of the way you know regardless and just this idea of being able to affect things after like death is not the end is i would have thought was more appealing to people yeah but i think that wraith how to put this i think that wraith is probably the most hopeful game of the entirety of classic world of darkness i'm sure some of you are screaming now if you meet me at a convention buy me a drink and i'll tell you more um (laughs) but because Wraith is also a very, very scary, terrifying game, that hope makes it scarier. Because when we mm. endanger hope in a horror setting, it becomes much, much dicier and much scarier and personal for people because there is exceptional risk going yes, on. Yes, yeah, because you really get the feeling of putting something on the line, right? There's no, mm-hmm. there are no second chances. I mean, if you're, if you're, if you lose your you know, you've got all these, basically, all you have in that game is your hopes and dreams, right? So yeah. everything that you put, you know, up, it's not like you're going to lose a magic sword or you're going to lose some money or you're going to crash a nice car, you know, like literally mm-hmm. every, I mean, everything is, is is stripped away to only the things that really matter. And I think that most people can buy into that. And maybe maybe that's maybe that's part of it. Like on on the one hand, people can easily identify with the themes and what's going on but at the same time they don't want to they don't want to go there because just like the character um you know has only got their hopes and dreams at stake you know when you invest in a character it's a a very exceptional individual that was Mm -hmm. able to completely divorce themselves from from their character and so and to to manufacture all the emotions associated with with playing that character Mm -hmm. and that that perhaps, perhaps that's part of the maturity thing as well yeah. Alrighty. Well, I think that uh, unless other any other race type uh, type questions come up, then uh, <laughs> I feel like I've got a chance to at least discuss it in part. But as you say, you can give you can well, as Lillian says, you can buy her a drink and you can discuss that further. Or if you see me at Big Bad Conestland, we can we can talk about about race some more. Um, so I think you've answered what's your favourite uh, favourite supplement. Uh, mm-hmm. So what if you could cause any game or supplement to cease to exist? What would it be? And it doesn't. You don't have to worry about somebody being sad or, or uh, you know, people not getting a chance to to play the game. Or you know, you, it's basically the game that, for whatever reason, has rubbed you up the wrong way. Uh, well, there was a little game that came out. I think I was probably in sixth or seventh grade. Uh, called Hole Human Occupied. Oh yes, Hole. Yes, buttery wholesomeness. Yes, I, yes. It oh. wasn't. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. That's a real blast from the past. Go ahead. So, so everyone that I was playing with at the time was a, a big rowdy group of boys which, you know, I am still friends with many of them, but they just completely missed any of the satirical elements and just went straight for, oh, this is a nasty, gross, weird game, and we're going to talk about it for two years. Right, well. Two longest years of my life. 
Yeah, because uh, just for those that don't know, whole whole is human occupied landfill is the is it's an acronym, right? And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, so and originally, well, like you say, it was written satirically, but then they had then they produced a sort of I don't know if it's a player's guide, but like a supplemental guide so that people could actually play it because I think they were sort of surprised that people took it as an actual role playing game, not sort of yeah. a you know tongue in cheek type thing. So they produced the supplemental book called Buttery Wholesomeness, which oh. was the uh, which sort of added a few more a bit more skin to the bones of, of the game so that people could actually play it. And you and people actually played it? Yes. I, you- I elected not to. I I I definitely just mic dropped on that game. I was like, guys, I'll I'll see you on Wednesdays. I don't care when you play this. I'm not going to be around. What shape did a game like that take? Did you ever hear any stories from it or or I, eavesdrop on it? Um, what little I heard was very just gonzo and a bit. I felt it was very pointless at the time, and they were having fun, which is good. I just. Hmm. The amount that they talked about. It's like hearing Call Me Maybe one too many times and just sort of developing this this uncontrollable twitch every time you hear that damn song, except right. for me, that whole. Right. I had completely forgotten about that. That's awesome. That's another, like I say, it's another blast from the past. Brilliant. Okay, so are there any games or supplements that you're looking forward to coming out? Tremulous. Tell me about that. Uh, it's a Kickstarter, um, and for those that know me, I'm sure that you are absolutely unsurprised because it just dives in headfirst into very Lovecraftian mythos, and it's got some really great historic flavor, and I can't really recommend it enough or describe it very well at this moment. I'm sure once I've actually read through it when it comes out, I'm a backer for it. It's a Kickstarter right now. You mm-hmm. should go look it up. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's so many things that I like in my horror games. And so I am very excited for when that comes out. Right. So in general, would you say you gravitate towards horror games? Um, hmm. I think that, mm, Probably 50% of the time, at least. Maybe 60%. All the fiction writing I do is is almost exclusively horror, even if it's in different genre settings. Uh, I think that it has a lot to say um, as, as sort of a, a flavor goes. Um, and even if I'm not playing in a horror game, I do definitely like horrific, uncomfortable elements. Uh, right. But I believe that life, fictitious or not, shouldn't be too easy. So. Sure. <laughs> Well, that's an interesting, uh, an interesting idea. I like my life to be easy, but but the, I guess you got to know that you're alive, right? So, do you have any <laughs> tips for people running horror games? Because we've talked about it before. On oh, I think it was Kristen Hayworth episode twenty one. We were talking about how difficult it is to evoke actual horror in uh, or fear, at least in your uh, players. Um. Hmm. Let me come up with sort of a highlights reel that isn't something I'm already saying in a future article. Um. So I can be novel. Um, hmm. uh, Ryan Macklin has, I think, two essays on horror and hope and how those two things interplay. I think they're a great uh, basic primer for people of things they should think about to make their games scary, but in a meaty way and not in a really another unkillable serial killer in a hockey mask. Right, sure. Um, and since so many people draw from 
from horror movies and TV shows as a visual medium, and role-playing game is not a perfect port for those things. If you want to run a horror game, look at the sort of tropes and themes you're touching on. Look at how they're done in movies, and I think often don't do it like it's done in a movie, because we've already been exposed to how that story plays out, and right. there's often so much problematic content about it. Along those lines, because my, my feeling is that if you want to write a good... Um, oh, and I don't know if I would go so far as say a good horror game, but I think a good game in general. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the the villain, to a greater or lesser extent, is your plot. So you can use a good villain to evoke some of those emotions just from the way that they mm-hmm. that they operate. Um, and so, do you have a favourite villain, and, and if so, why? And how does that tie into this idea of being able to evoke uh, emotions in your players? Mm. I think my favorite villain was from a mage LARP I was in, and he was a syndicate member of the technocracy. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar, they're, um, they're often considered the antagonist group in Mage the Ascension to Mages. Uh, and he was scary because he didn't lift a finger supernaturally on anyone in the game. He did things like freeze your bank account, flag you for an IRS audit, uh, interfere the hours you're getting at work, hold up your medical license. There are all of these things that are characters were invested in as perfectly normal, everyday parts of their life, how they supported themselves, and he endangered them with paperwork, and we were terrified. Right. And so what aspects of, uh, of a villain are, are important then? Is it, in this particular case, it sounds like, you know, like the, the plodding menace, you know, the, the irresistible force, you know, like just enough uh, enough power to constantly make you aware of the fact that you know you're you know you're, that you're an ant is that you know this implacable uh, villain is that the mm. is, is that what you found appealing about them or well I think in in that game's case we didn't necessarily see him as implacable but sure. we saw him as a very big threat and a huge challenge that we weren't prepared to deal with you know a guy trying to kill you in a dual arcane sure whatever we've got it handled but a guy that could go after you in imperfectly legal if very very sneaky methods that really forced us to think outside the box and it reinforced me that if you want your players to be scared you hit them where it hurts and you only hit them enough to make them aware of the pain you don't have to grind your fist into that punch but if you pop somebody in the nose and they realize it happened and that you can do it again that's scary yeah oh for sure for sure so do you think that um a good villain should have attributes that you find admirable I think they, they certainly can. I I love villains that are are smart, that are capable, uh, competent, um, a villain with a mission, a, a villain who has no discernible or exceptionally wacky and nonsensical motivations are ones that I just despise because it doesn't make sense. They don't have their own motivations, which they should. A villain is a hero of their own story, mm. and your villain should reflect that. Right. So how do you feel about the the Joker as portrayed by Heath Ledger, say, for example? That was amazing uh, and terrifying. That was... I I think that it is a very, very hard example to live up to, but if you want to have a villain whose motivations are, are very much rooted in violence and chaos, that's a good one to go to. 
Right, and you don't find him difficult, like you didn't find him, I mean, he wasn't exactly a grinning maniac, but he certainly had, had aspects of it where it was very difficult to understand what his motivations were and to empathise with them in any way. Um, yeah, I, I definitely find him difficult to empathise with. I don't think I actually ever empathised with Heath Ledger's Joker. A beautiful performance, but not one that I, I empathised with. But I did find him scary because he was competent. Yes. I think a lot of people fall into tropes of, oh, he's just a crazy psycho serial killer with a chainsaw, and that has no nuance. It doesn't right. make sense. Right. It... I have a friend, um, Minerva, who says that with fiction, whether or not it's a game that we're running or something we're writing, we have to make it make sense. That there is a degree of sense that we have to give it because there is only so much buy-in you're going to get from people. And right. the, 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 the buy-in for a guy who could bureaucratically ruin my life is pretty big. Uh, the buy-in for a guy running down University Way with a chainsaw, it's just... In in some ways, I think that we're exhausted by that that right. kind of villain. Right. Okay. So changing gears completely, if you could only be a player <laughs> or a GM, which would you choose and why? Oh, I am terrible at cold equations. Uh, I think that doing both is incredibly essential to fully rounding out your experience with games. It definitely. And, and too many people see player as a passive role. Yes. Um, so I suppose I would be a player, but I'd likely be a huge headache if my GMs were control freaks. Right. <laughs> Sounds a bit like uh, the way uh, Ryan Macklin episode 30 was describing, you know, this idea of an alpha player, somebody who, you know, sort of help, tries to help to push the story or sees cool things that they want to happen and, and injects those into the, the story rather than sort of sitting back baby bird style and you know waiting for for stuff to uh for stuff to happen is that mm -hmm. sort of the idea you're looking for oh uh, yes definitely <laughs> okay so when you are a gm what sort of preparation do you do mm. uh, i think it depends on who my group is and what we're playing um uh, sometimes with things like horror games uh, and and with some fantasy settings, I um, because I'm a nerd for props, I've you know got out of my way to partially light things on fire in my stove. Don't try that at home, no matter what age you are, and always have a extinguisher on hand right there. It was it was in my living room. I I did not light my rental on fire, but it was it was touch and go for a minute. <laughs> Um, so that's a way to engender real horror, is it? <laughs> Only that was, in the G that was in the GM, though. <laughs> yes, that was for me, just for me. Um, uh, if I can think of ways to do it, I really like to engage people's senses at the table. Um, I have synesthesia, which is a neurological condition where a lot of my senses are triggered by one another, sort of in, in concert. Right. Um, and while I can't literally give my brain to my players, which would probably be inadvisable and illegal in many countries, <laughs> um, I I want them to have a sense that I I don't want them getting bored, even if it's on a sensory level. I, I still want them to be able to engage and stay with the moment and really enjoy it. And so things like props or adjusting, you know, the temperature in the room, um, I admit I turn my thermostat down a bit before one survival horror game because we had a session and I knew they're trapped in the sub-basement of an abandoned hospital. And right. I figured if it's cold, maybe that'll help. Right, yeah. And did it? 
it it did. Um, people were cold and frightened, and being cold makes people snappy and nervous and scared, and they they would like to not be that way. They would like right. to be warm right sure. now. Sure. <laughs> um, so how often uh, do you uh, role play, and for how long, and with how many people, if we can chuck them all in together there? Okay. Um, my last regular in-person around a table group had uh, seven people, which I will not ever do to myself again unless it's a LARP right. or a board game only group. Role-playing, not no tabletop games again, not just now, just now. Um, for a tabletop role-playing game, whether that's a story game or otherwise, I think that including a GM, three to four people is the perfect fit. I think that once you get to five and beyond, you start stretching the narrative and emotional resources for everyone, especially the GM. And so it's unfair to everyone involved. The GM doesn't have enough bandwidth to take care of everyone narratively, and there are people who get left out because people might be in different scenes, they might be doing things in different directions, and, you know, then you have people who are stuck for like a half hour, you know, reading a book because they can't game. <laughs> right, sure. When uh, when you play, how long would you say was a good amount of time? Uh, hmm. I think two hours is a really good, like, sweet spot if you have, I think, about, like, a four-person table, including GM. Uh, I think that's, like, the upper limit of a good, like, you know, we should call it right around here. Um, right. I think that you can get a lot done in 60 to 90 minutes if you have the right group and everyone's really, um, you know, on note. Sure. Um, I will go up to four hours with the right people and the right game. Um, sure. I used to LARP weekly, and that was a three- to four-hour game, depending on which LARP I was at, because I attended two different games. Mm-hmm. Um and the only reason I was willing to do something that was that bloody long was that it was LARP. There was a large group. There was lots of GMs on hand, and I, I could have a lovely time. Sure. Um, and unless I was in combat, I could leave halfway through a LARP session, and absolutely nothing would happen. It's a lot harder to walk away from a tabletop session. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Especially yeah. if it's a long one. Yeah, uh, sure. But, yeah, if it's over four hours, oh, screw that. No, fuck it. I'm not going to do it. Right. right. Fair <laughs> enough. Um so do you think that males should play females as in, and you can take that either way, whether you think that, you know, they should be required to as part of, you know, growth as a, as a role player or, or whether, you know, it should be allowed at all? I don't think it's necessarily required, but I think that everyone should feel free to try playing a character that's a different gender. I've played men and women, and I've seen men in groups I've uh, played in, including LARPs, uh, play men and women. Um, I, I think that the big problem that can come up is that when either gender doesn't do it mindfully, it it can be seen as very offensive and and rude to go into it playing a stereotype of that other gender. And it's easy to play a stereotype or an overused trope um, when you're you know not from that gender. Right. Um, and so it's it's an easy narrative crutch to fall back on, but it's the best way you can just completely and utterly fucking piss off the people whose gender you're playing um so you you owe it to yourself and to your fellow players that you know if you're gonna play opposite gender you know be be cool about it right so do you have any advice for somebody who uh, a male that wanted to play a female and the reason that i that i bring it up is because 
I was I, when I was formulating some of these questions, I sort of thought to myself, well, I've actually never had a female in any long-running camp. I've had plenty of con games where there, where I've had females playing characters, but I've never actually played a. Uh, I've never run a game for female a female for a long period of time, and. Likewise, I've never actually had a female as a GM, so I was wondering, you know, whether, you know, if you're role-playing and you're role-playing a female and it's not because the character class requires it, then, you know, you're exploring, there's a reason why you've chosen to do that. And so do you get a more authentic experience if you have a female who is a GM in order to, the, the way that they respond to your character? And, and what sort of advice would you have for somebody who wanted to, to do that? Hmm. I'm not sure if having a female GM would necessarily make it more authentic. I think that if you want to play a gender swap, um, so, you know, a man playing a woman or a woman playing a man, um, you know, talk to your talk to your table about it. If it's in a long-term campaign, you know, if you're starting up a new game, you're starting up a character because, you know, your last one died, hopefully in an awesome way because everyone sure. likes awesome death stories. Of course. Um, I, I would talk to my table, you know, hey, you know, I, I think it would be really cool to play guy. It's not something I've done before. Um, you know, if you think that I'm doing something that's just really, you know, why, why would you play any character like that, let alone a guy like that? You know, check in with me after a, a game. Uh, you know, is there content that would make you uncomfortable to see me do while I'm playing gender swap? Because a lot of people have lines and veils, you know, fade to black on things like sexual content or violence or anything like that. And I've seen tables where um, one gender would become very uncomfortable because a gender swapped, um, you know, character situation, someone was, you know, like flirting with a barkeep or a barmaid. And depending on the, the gender ratio of the players, that they could feel very odd about it right. uh, if they're not very comfortable with that. So definitely get the temperature of everyone at the table. I think that's easiest in long-term campaigns because you have more room to debrief and talk to each other about it. And, you know, if you feel like there's a certain level that you can't inhabit your character, you have your fellow players to, to use as resources. Right. Um, because there are life experiences that we miss out on because we're not, you know, a, a different gender. Sure. Um, and as far as con games go, um, I think that you should still check in if there's going to be gender swapping or if, you know, like a GM shows up with a certain number of male sheets and a certain number of female sheets. And, you know, maybe a woman that shows up doesn't feel like taking um, Ditsy Blonde number 12 and would like sure. to take a Courageous Archaeologist. Sure. Um, so I, I think that that, you know, hey, you know, is this cool process? You have to speed it up a lot for cons, but oh, I yeah, think absolutely. that it's, it's, it's a fabulous thing to do to take that first 10 minutes and be like, all right, so is anyone cool if I play a different gender? Right. Yeah, I, don't, I can't <laughs> imagine too many um, people having a problem with, with a female playing a male. I mean, perhaps my circles are too small, but I was thinking you know, when it comes to playing a, a female, if you're playing a, say, a Dungeons & Dragons type game and you roll up a character um, and you decide that she wants to be a female and she's going to be a, a character, like, um, are you familiar with Game of Thrones? Um, a little bit. Okay, there's the female character in there, Brienne, who's the, so basically a female knight, and mm -hmm. she's indistinguishable from any of, the, any of the male characters, except perhaps 
when uh, and spoilers here, and you may even want to close your ears here too. But when um, the Baratheon chap that she's protecting is killed, you know, she has a what strikes me as sort of a female reaction to it. And apart from that, I can't see any situation where she is actually obviously a female character and and, and that mm-hmm. goes to, to people in real life as well but do you think it and the reason I bring that up is do you think it depends on the type of game whether you need to actually do that calling in you know like checking in type thing if you're going to play a character drama then it's more important I think that regardless of the genre like whether or not you're going into a game that's very like straight up sword and sorcery we're going to kick some ass take some names and be knights for our lord um that it's still important just to check the tenor of of the reception of this idea with your with your players but i'm uh, again for people that know me it is not unsurprising that i am very very into you know people should check in with their players uh, not like in the middle of game like every game ever but that before and after games you know it's okay to talk about how things are going and plots going you know people you know swapping genders on characters um I, I think that in the in the the case that you're talking about, um, you don't necessarily have to like lampshade it and be like, "Hey, you know, this this character is a girl," um, because <laughs> that's not something that that character is is um, really like super embracing or centers a lot of her life on. It, right. it sounds like she's more she puts knight before being a woman, and right. I think. It's perfectly okay to play characters like that, um, right. whether or not gender swapping is going on. But gender can be a very, very sensitive topic, especially in gaming, which is why I say that, you know, no matter how much or how little, you know, in character happens at your table, you should still talk about it. Right. Um, do you or should GMs fudge dice rolls? Uh, as a player, I don't fudge my rolls. As a GM, I fudge my rolls when I think it's dramatically appropriate, and I only fudge them down, not up. Yeah, that, I th- that's the general sort of tenor of people's reaction to it um, overall. Is that I mean, I don't. There's no way, f- at least in my opinion, as a player, you can't fudge your roles, right? Like you have to rely on your your GM or your storyteller to be able to to interpret what what happens. But mm-hmm. a, a a theme, I guess, or at least a, a, some, a common ground that I've achieved with a number of people on the show is that being able to cope with anything that the dice throws up and make anything meaningful and good in the context of the story um, comes more with, with experience. Would you agree with that? I think it's easier to roll with, with the dice. as um, Especially like on the GM side... It, it was a harder learning curve for me to be able to roll with the dice because sometimes, you know, I would have these terrible results for players sitting behind my screen and I would feel like just tortured because I was like, oh God, I don't want to tell them what just happened. This is awful. I don't know how they're going to come back from this. And right. um, I think that on both sides of the screen and the table that as we play more, experience definitely helps because our understanding of narrative matures, at least hopefully it does, and pacing. And we have to trust our GMs that no matter what those dice say, they will... They will find a way to not make that like meaningless, and yes, we as yeah. players can find ways to make roles work narratively, even if it means that my head is now in a basket. 
yeah, yeah, sure. That's the thing is that you know you've got to, in some respects, you have to be prepared to be selfless. You know, look, what's best for the for the story overall? I want to tell a cool story, and like you said, it's always good to have a, a couple of great death stories in your uh, your back pocket to break out at, at conventions. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, what's the best and or most inspiring film or television show for you for uh, for role playing purposes? Oh gosh, there's so many. I well, currently then. Oh, currently. Hmm. Well, I, I've recently started rewatching a, a perennial favorite of mine, Harper's Island, uh, which I, I've i been going back now that I've been playing story games and looking at it with like a story game eye, which is even weirder than just watching it the first time through. Uh, for those unfamiliar, it was a one-season-only show. It was meant to only be one season. Oh, uh, good plot is everybody goes off to this pretty island off the coast of Washington State for the wedding of, you know, uh, a hometown sweetheart and her boyfriend, and someone starts horribly murdering wedding guests during the week they're supposed to be getting married. Nice. Um, and it uh, it has a, a really nice, you know, sort of um, closed off, um, we have a very set you know, boundary as to where we can get to as people and a set amount of resources. Um, so you have a little bit of resource management. There's a lot of intense characterization. Mm. Um, it's very claustrophobic, which is funny since, you know, it's a, a reasonably sized island. Even. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's terrifying. It makes totally normal everyday places like your hotel room or the kitchen. Just these these places of just like mindless horror. It's so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that does sound. It sounds like a game of uh, of fiasco or sort of a one of those yes. sort of a con mm-hmm. game or something like that, where you've got such a restricted amount of time and yeah. and uh, and a lot of and a lot of pressure. So yeah, that's uh, yeah. I'll have to check that. I've not seen that before, and and well played for not spoiling it there. Well done. Um, <laughs> If you could become a character in a role-playing uh, game, uh, what would it be um, oh. and why? So, like, as in you suddenly became... It wasn't like you could actually say, well, I'm going to play a game of Wraith and I'm going to be a... You know, I'm going to be suffering because I didn't hit the 3,000th home run or something like that. You know, you actually become somebody in a role-playing game. I think up till about two or three years ago, so up until I got, you know, some pretty serious story game exposure, I would have said uh, a mortal in a classic World of Darkness game because I am full of what I feel is mostly useless trivia, so I'd probably have just like a sea of dots on my character sheet. And it would right. be fabulous because I'd, you know, school all of my roles. Uh, <laughs> but now I... Oh, God, there are so many good story games out there that are so good and... And just systems that I hadn't really encountered until very recently. Um, Cortex Plus, I have like just totally fallen in love with. I haven't played around with it a lot. Um, my first exposure was actually in in a leverage hack with some Cortex stuff, and there was some mage on top of it, and it it, it was wonderful and crazy. Um, right. Yeah, I don't know. I think maybe Cortex Plus, um, just because I really, really like, you know, competency. I think it's sexy. Right. <laughs> and what aspect of it would you like your, your player to be? Oh, hmm. Like to, like to be a, a Lenny Balsara episode 16, so you want to be an information broker because then he's more likely to survive until the, till the end. Or would you like to be somebody up front? Ooh, um... I think I'd like to be a mastermind because Cortex Plus, uh, I, I think, would be great for playing a modern-day Irene Adler. Right, nice. <laughs> Irene Adler, let's say, uh, 
how I'm, I'm just trying to think how because I hadn't really thought about it before, but my game Victoria and like I, I a lot of um, the ideas that I had in it, at least the way that it would play out. In, in my head, it played out a lot like a like an episode of uh, a Guy Ritchie's Sherlock Holmes. You know that sort of that sort of idea. Perhaps a little bit darker and a little bit more, um, and a little bit more of the unknown in there. But the character of Irene Adler is not is not that not that important in the uh, in the story. And it doesn't really it reveals something about. I mean, she ultimately just reveals something about Holmes, and she's not that instrumental. Um, how did you feel about her in those films? Hmm. Um, she she was not my favorite interpretation, but I also have to recognize that um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was uh, very anti-suffragette and anti-women's mm. right movement. Yes. Uh, so how she is written by Doyle is to be interpreted, you know, in context of the time as, you know, just this this saucy woman that gets away and, you know, she reveals something about Holmes. Uh, a modern feminist read of her, you can reinterpret her as being smarter than Holmes yes. and and an equal match to him in wits. Um, right. I, I don't think that there have been a lot of people who have successfully done that with her on screen yet. No. Well, uh, there's a... There's a- a challenge for you there then anybody that's playing Victoria out there if you'd like to um, include an Irene Adler style uh, style character then uh, then you make her uh, not just saucy but make her a, a Machiavellian mastermind and you'll get the adoration of all your female players so do you have any <laughs> dice superstitions uh, yes and I have friends that laugh at them and I don't care I will do it anyway I have a, um, a box you know lid and bottom for my dice and if I'm rolling really badly on dice I'll be like you get a time out and I will shake the dice <laughs> and frown at it and then I put it in the other side of the box and just sort of quarantine it from the rest in some vague superstitious <laughs> hope that it won't completely screw my rolling the rest of the night with the rest of my dice. Right, right. <laughs> Do you think that a certain aspect of the dice superstitions comes from the fact that, you know, we're all make, playing make-believe when we're, you know, when we're doing a role-playing game, and so by, by playing make-believe we're sort of, in, at least in some small way, you know, fostering this idea that maybe not everything is as it, uh, is as it seems and, and that, you know, maybe there is some magic in the dice? I, I think that's certainly a valid interpretation. I think that uh, I, I myself don't have a whole lot of new awesome things to add about our dice. Um, Gameplay Right Press put out a book called The Bones, Us and Our Dice. Uh, if you want to know about uh, role-playing and dice in general and dice superstitions, it's a fantastic book for that. Great. So what's your role-playing elevator pitch, including your go-to example? Mm, uh, getting someone to come play a game with me? That's right, yeah. So for somebody says to you, Hi, Lily, what are you doing this evening? And you say, I'm going role-playing. And they say, role-playing, what's that? And then you say... Um, I'm going to go play make-believe with a bunch of my other friends who are also legal adults. We're going to have a <laughs> fabulous time, and I'm going to be a spooky wizard. Right. Do you do you ever do like a and it's like this, or do you do you try not to and uh, try not to encourage people to get involved? Not necessarily because you don't want anybody else to have fun, but but when you do that, you know you're sort of almost required to invite them along to play. I 
I think that probably the things that I try to like draw as like examples uh, for people is either make believe with rules or it's a lot like uh, long form improvisational theater. That, right. That's one that I get the most recognition of the basic concept of because so many people have seen improv now right. uh, since it's become such a, a, a common um, uh, form of theater, especially with comedy. Sure. Um, and that appeals to a lot of people. And when they say, oh, well, you know, I'm not very good at improv, I'm like, no, it's okay, because, you know, you can pick slips of paper up, and it'll give you sort of guidance, and then right. uh, telling them that they don't have to, like, make absolutely everything up, and that there there are some basic guideposts. I, I can usually get people to warm up and be like, hmm, well, that sounds like a lot of fun. I usually invite people to come gaming with me if there's room at the table or the LARP or whatever. Right. Um, but you know, people don't have to take me up on that. Right. You don't usually. You don't lead with the uh, this really cool game called Wraith, and it's absolutely the best game. You should come and learn role playing by playing Wraith with me. No, no. A bad lead-in I, game, perhaps. <laughs> um, I I think that with introducing people to to table games. Um, I, I think this is because of convention play. I've been really liking introducing people to, to tabletop, like, D20-type stuff with, like, one-shot games, so they can right. sort of, like, get a feeling for what that's like. Right. Um, if people want an insane way to while away their evening with me, um, whether or not it's at a con or people I run into socially, I usually bust out Fiasco because, you know, it's cheaper than renting a movie, especially since I usually don't remember to take my DVDs back. Well, there you go. <laughs> that can that can uh, pile up the late charges, that's for sure. Although maybe if you keep them long enough, then the shop will go out of business and you'll be able to keep them and nobody will know. Okay, so for all the marbles, Lillian, totaling 100, divide the points up between system, GM, and players. Hmm. Uh, I would say I'd give 20 points to system in a lot of cases and divide everything else up um, half to GM and half to players. Uh, I see a lot of really good players and really good GMs do amazing things with systems that were either um, written without a lot of clarity or that are still in very like early playtest phases, and not necessarily people that have had any prior exposure to those things, just um, uh, to, to those systems, that is, but just by... Um, width and breadth of their experience as GMs and as players can do amazing things with just about any damn system. Ladies and gentlemen, Lillian Cohen-Moore. That's it for episode 31 of Penny Red. For any questions or comments arising from the show, daniel at hazardgaming.com. If you'd like more information about Big Bad Con, go to bigbadcon.com. And for more information about Victoria, go to hazardgaming.com. If you'd like to purchase the game, click the Buy Victoria link and that will take you to a page where you can purchase the book. The book is $25 and shipping to virtually anywhere in the world is $15. Now I know that's an outrageous amount to pay for shipping, but that's the cost to me. In fact, it actually costs a little bit more than that, plus there's the packaging and so forth that goes into that. If you'd like to go a slightly cheaper route, you can get the book through Lulu. Uh, If you do a search for Daniel Hodges or for Victoria, you should be able to turn it up pretty easily. If you want to go the PDF route, you can get it from DriveThruRPG or RPG Now. You can also get the PDF through the website. And for listeners of Penny Red, if you go to the Buy Victoria link and then scroll down on the right-hand side until you're across from the field for entering your email address, you will find a secret link that will take you to a page where you can get it for just $6.99. Next week's guest is as yet undecided. However, 
it promises to feature some of the new questions from the second season of Penny Red. So until then, keep talking the walk.